Spend time with the Voices of Watch Collecting. A blog to watch's team broaches the most important topics in timepiece enthusiasm today. This is the Spending Time Show. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Spending Time, the Blog to Watch podcast. I am joined by our David Braden. Hey David. Hey Ariel. Hey everyone. We are in uh, an unprecedented time in the watch industry. Basel World has been cancelled. Watches and Wonders, which was previously SIHH, has been cancelled. Other things have been cancelled. Uh, Swatch Group's uh, events have been cancelled. Uh, Seiko's events in Japan have been cancelled. A lot has been cancelled. And, and you know, I think one of the things that, that I've been thinking a lot about is how I feel about all this. Because I've been doing this since 2007. I've been writing about watches. And in 2008 and 2009 was the financial crisis. And I saw that. And that was supposed to be a massively big deal at the time. That just was supposed to have decimated things. Whatever is going on now, this crisis is in a, way way worse. So I, w- I so I sort of lived through one crisis that the watch industry was definitely affected by. Like for sure, it was affected by it. But then I think you know we also think about the quartz crisis, which was also told to have decimated the watch industry, and this was in uh, basically the 1970s and the in the 1980s. So this was, I don't know, what was it? Was the quartz crisis, like, are there dates established on this? Yeah, there's an actual timeline in the article that uh, we produced. It's called The uh, the Brief History of ERA. And actually, there's um, a really, a, a quite detailed um, explanation on how the uh, quartz crisis unfolded, because that is what has led uh, to the domination of ERA. So the whole thing started in 1969, and then in the 1970s, as the quartz m- movement-equipped watches were becoming cheaper and more affordable and yet more accurate and, and all that, and all these... Um, early issues were ironed out, they were becoming more and more of an issue and an alternative to quality Swiss watches, which were not necessarily a luxury item at the time, but just a, you know, a high quality tool in the 50s and 60s. And people who wanted to um, keep time accurately, but not you know spend a fortune on it, they could now just go out and buy a quartz watch and uh, actually get a lot more for their money. So that whole thing unfolded over the 70s, and uh, yeah, I have I have exact figures, but you know, it it wasn't exactly literally a decimation, but close to that. So many like tens of thousands of watchmakers and and people involved in the watch industry have lost lost their jobs and. and hundreds upon hundreds of brands and and, uh, and and smaller manufacturers and suppliers have gone out of business over the course of those 10 years or uh, a little bit more than 10 years and the whole thing culminated in the um, in the creation of ASUAG and SSIH not to be confused with the SIHH and these two big not conglomerates but these two big groups comprised the movement makers and those who were like watch brands or watch manufacturers and these ended up in what is today known as the Swatch Group or uh, that but that's that's a, com- uh, um, a complicated story but you know Nicholas Haya came into the picture and the whole thing was bound to be sold to um, to Japanese actually so these two groups were to be sold off um, by the banks who were owned a lot of money by the Swiss watch industry and these two groups were created um, you know with all the IP all the brands everything almost all of them and they were to be sold and that was when uh, Nicholas Hyde senior uh, said that okay this can't be done we cannot sell this 
to the Japanese, this has to uh, stay in Switzerland, and um, from then on, you know, the rest of the story is known. And from the 1980s, mid-1980s, this new renaissance of Swiss watches and luxury watches has begun. Um, more, on, more on that on the brief history of Edda article on a blog to watch. Thank you. I, I felt like I just read one of those monologues in like an Ayn Rand book. <laughs> like it was interesting, but it was like, this is still a few more pages to go. But thank you. Thank yes, you for that, David. Sure. Um, uh, so everything that David said <clears throat> coincided with a crisis in the watch industry, which the watch industry was sort of able to get through. I wasn't there for that, so I don't know what that recovery was like. Um, the recovery, if you want to call it that, after 2008, 2009, wasn't really a recovery that was very stable and healthy. It was sort of a shifting from certain types of areas of money to others. So, for example, shifting to a more diversified global um, distribution, a lot more focused on key markets. Uh, so what the watch industry did is said, you know what, we're just going to focus as much as we can on, on China and certain cities in the U.S. and London, and ju just you know, just a couple of key markets. And what they ended up doing is putting um, putting too many eggs in one basket. And so now, with the trade shows being canceled, and they're not they're not canceled for exclusively financial reasons, but let's just say a lot of people were very excited to not have to spend money on trade show stuff. Some brands still had to do it, but there was a sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. It happened to many people. Um, but economically speaking, the watch industry is not doing uh, as great as it'd like to. And there's a lot of uh, dysfunction and mismanagement amongst the big groups. There's still a lot of fantastic watchmakers out there and great minds and great products being made all the time. But it's, um, it's a crisis time right now. And the Swiss, as conservative uh, as they are and like to maintain a certain level of stability, now have... Um, a virus that they're very afraid of at their doorstep and they see instability in their ability to, to sell what seem to be very stable things like luxury products and timepieces. And they are now questioning a lot of things in a way that I don't think the Swiss are very accustomed to doing. And it's having a major effect on this strange little slice of the world, which is the watch industry that you and I decided to make the home for our career. Yes. And we've, you know, as much as we understand the watch industry, as, as many watches and, and sales as I think that you and I are directly responsible for, we don't really have a say in anything that goes on. Like, I can be loud and I can give my opinion and I can tell people what I think, but ultimately, you know, they're going to do whatever they, whatever they want and they usually do the least expensive option. <laughs> and I tend to have a more expensive option, I think, sort of like what's stable and what's the best way of doing it. And so my idea on how to fix something is more expensive than what they want to do. So they try less expensive things first, and it usually doesn't go their way. So then they eventually get back to my idea. Um, but they don't really listen to us. So we sort of have to sit on the side and be pundits, but knowing that, like, you know, the the dudes in charge over in Geneva and Paris and wherever, like... I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll even hear what we have to say, but we don't. You and you agree. You've never gotten the impression that they're legitimately taking our position as persuasive when they seem to make crucial decisions that we're experts on. Not immediately, never. Um, in the long term, many, many times. But you know, when we sit at the desk and we say, like, "Hey, okay, this is this is what we think," or you know, pros and cons and all that, and 
yeah, it's it's extremely rare that even after all these years and eight over eight thousand articles published on the blog to watch and over thirteen years in operation and you know, millions and tens of millions of page views and all that, so much analysis, so much time has gone into it. And I'm not saying those people have not spent their last five to ten years in this industry because many of them has and many of them. Um, have you know dedicated even longer than that, but the way we perceive this industry and and our perspective is completely different because we are sort of like hovering above the whole thing and we, we can look we are, we are like we, we are like birds of prey you know we can we can fly across borders and we can look into that country and that region and that region and we have this insight and so when we say something it's not just based on the position of that one single brand but the situation that prevails in the, in the entire industry or, or most of the industry and that affects more than just one brand or just one group and yet like you say it's extremely rare that they say oh okay these guys from this perspective say this uh, and they have this perspective that we absolutely do not have um, let's listen to them it's never that easy it's always more difficult than that well, I think the reason, and again, I'm, I had to come to this conclusion, I guess, the hard way, but the reason for that, and again, because somebody had to say this over and over and over again to me, was ego. That's the best reason I've ever been able to understand why people like you and me are not really listened to, and that is the people we're talking to, it's, it's too easy to just say it's ego, but they are trained or maybe it's their culture, but they believe that the information they have is somehow superior to what we have. Not sure why, I'm not sure where the foundation is, but the notion is that they believe that they know better. And part of that is a positive thing for luxury watches. And that is, if you think about it, a luxury watch brand has to be unbelievably confident. Because they need to be able to go to the world and say, this extremely expensive thing that's probably more expensive than it needs to be is not only something you should buy, even though you don't need it, but it's going to make you look like an upgraded person. There's just, yeah. you know, there's an ego involved in making a luxury product and selling it and saying, that thing I make is going to make you look better. You, you just, it goes with the territory. So Absolutely. You, have, you, you have that built into the process. It is true. I, I would point out a difference that what you what you just said is something that is for the public and not for you know it's supposed to be for the public only, and be a different story behind the scenes, behind closed doors, which is where we operate a lot of the time. So obviously you tell the you know the world that you know uh, um, to break the rules you must first master them, which is one of the more annoying um, <laughs> slogans from from recent <laughs> years. But behind the behind the scenes, you know, you don't have to act like that because it's it's ridiculous, and there should be a conversation. But it is true also that we learned this many years ago that of course, even though we know we are right, and even though we should be credited for actually a lot of things, um, it's always best if we frame those in a way that the, the brands or these people feel like they said it. You know, so it only works if they say it. So we have to put these words into their mouths and these ideas. And uh, but this is this is a known concept. It's not like we invented it. It's 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 part of like any good sales technique or most of them actually. Okay. Um, to have, have the customers <laughs> say it and not you say that this is the best. And once they can pose as if it was their idea, then they will do it, even though it came from us. It, 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 we have seen this happen so many times over. You got to let me add something, though, David, because here's the thing. If you didn't understand 
the context of the industry, we could just sound like people that are being really self-congratulatory and feel like we're not being appreciated for something we did. Um, and I can maybe understand how it might come across because just hearing it from the side, I'm like, it sounds like we're like, you know, complaining that we're not getting enough accolades or some type of I told you so thing. Um, it's actually beyond that. It, it's it's a specific thing with w doing business with the Swiss where you're literally not going to ever convince them of anything that they don't believe themselves. And I've been told when doing um, professional consultation or public speaking in Switzerland, I've been told like certain hints like don't speak directly in the sense that don't tell them to do something, maybe suggest that they might want to do it, you know, be very passive. Like, like, and I've heard other people obviously have the same frustrations that the Swiss don't listen. And this is, um, again, there's sort of, it's sort of a double-edged sword. On the other side, it's something positive it does for them. But the, uh, but on I in terms of listening to outsiders that know what they're talking about, um, the Swiss are not able to listen to good advice. They don't trust it. And the problem is living in their secluded bubble, there's a lot of things they don't know. I mean, it's like, it's like looking in the own mirror. You don't really know yourself as well as someone who might see from the side. Like there's certain things you just can't see about yourself. And it's like, it's the same thing with the watch industry. They themselves cannot look at themselves and know a lot of the problems that they have, which is fine, it's normal. The issue is they don't have the trust to listen to people that are established experts. And it's not just, you know, me or you or the rest of the Abad to Watch team lamenting this. This is a this is sort of a global phenomenon where anyone dealing with the watch industry or a lot of times the Swiss and I hate to sort of you know sound like I'm 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 being biased here but it's it's sort of a common stereotype is that they don't listen to anyone they only do what they want to do they just don't seem to care and a lot of negative things I mean these 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 two trade shows were canceled and yes the coronavirus but no one is really thinking it's just that like everyone knows the watch industry wanted to have this break no no matter how many jobs or professions were at stake yeah the, yeah we're talking about <laughs> different things here but yeah that's true yeah this the watch industry needed this break but it's 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 true for many different you know walks of life and you know we could we could talk about economics we could talk about um, um, ecological issues and all that um, we always see that if you don't take care of these problems yourself somebody else is going to take care of uh, care of it for you or something else uh, a force bigger than yourself is going to force you to take care of it and this is this is how it happened now I mean we have heard issues relating to these trade shows and issues relating to costs and, and the value proposition therein uh, for years and years and years and nothing was really done until Swatch Group pulled out, which was the first coronavirus ever <laughs> for, you know, for, for Basel. <laughs> that, that was the actual COVID-19 or whatever the number is. Uh, when they pulled out, that was the big shock. Not not this year's coronavirus nonsense. It happened two years ago when, when, when Swatch Group announced that, okay, this this was it. That was the breaking point and the fact that things got so out of hand and so many people had to be fired from the organizers teams and all that and the whole thing had to be revised. It took that long and that much because they didn't listen. It took them driving away a group that used to spend 
um, allegedly 40, 50 million Swiss, uh, Swiss francs a year on exhibiting at Basel World to pull out. That was a big blow and it had to get that far for things to, uh, to, make it, to take a turn. So let's, let's just, I think that's worth repeating a little bit because again, it's 2020 and the official reason that Watches and Wonders in Basel World were, were canceled, they like to say like, you know, put on hold i mean uh, it's an annual show so yes technically it's gonna come back but it, it's you know this is fear of the virus and I, again i can understand that but these shows have been losing participants for the last couple of years for reasons completely unrelated to this so um the 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 covid19 was um a catalyst you know a breaking point like uh, the the you know the 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 needle that that broke the camel's back or something like that like it was a bad thing and it was disruptive but it wasn't like we're dealing with a super healthy industry to begin with. That's all true. All right, let's let's close in a positive uh, in in a positive way. So what what positives are there to be found in this situation? <sighs> well, I'm actually very optimistic about it. I mean, look, as a business person working within the watch industry, anytime you have um, investor concern or instability or disruption, um, some people are going to gain, but a lot more people are going to lose until things sort of level out and then people feel confident again. The problem right now is people in uh, mass lack the confidence I spend A and I'm going to earn B. And until people feel that confidence, people tend to not spend, especially given the types of investors that are in the watch space. These aren't like traditional investors. These are people that are highly emotional and people that are are using this as um, a different type of asset or something like that. Or it's just it's it's not the same types of um, investors you might have in other industries that can have a more long term outlook. People here tend to have a short term outlook or just generally be a lot more. Um, emotional in the types of way they act. So they're not going to be spending right now because no one's in a particularly celebratory mood. So this is a challenge in the short term. In the long run, it's going to force the industry to snap and break. And this sort of harsh wind that is a crisis, the strongest will survive. And trees that were sort of taking up space will be blown down, which allows room for new brands to emerge. This has been such a difficult place for new brands to emerge. Think about the last several years, all the micro brands that have come about. What does it mean that there's this enormous amount of new growth? New trees are attempting to grow. A lot of them are being blocked, but they're attempting to being grow. Why? It means enough people see Areas in the space of watches for competitiveness, for novelty, for different types of pricing, for different types of all types of things, that the watch industry from a creative and demand standpoint is anything but dead. Yet you need to clear away some of the old shrubbery uh, to allow for new growth. But you got to do it in a way that you make sure you don't kill the forest itself. And so the next few years are going to be crucial because you need to make sure that there's enough watchmakers there's enough companies to service watches and to actually produce watches and to do all the industrial things. Switzerland is going to have to radically rethink its reliance on China as a customer as well as a, a supplier. Too many products are made in China and therefore you have any type of disruption. You get what happens now. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many brands are going to go away, but 
let's put it this way. You know, I've been the one in the past, I believe, to be m- kind of the naysayer. I've always been like the guy, the one saying like, don't do that. That's going to be bad for business. Those influencers, you know, like that's not going to, that's not a good long-term strategy. I've basically been that person and everyone else has been, things are going to be fine. Da, 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 da. And now like I'm the guy who is basically trying to be optimistic when it's like doom and gloom and naysayers like everywhere. Like everyone wants to call this out for being as bad as possible, which again, I mean, tell me your perspective, but do you not remember that almost all the time, no matter how crappy things got, people were just like, people just love buying these watches over here and things are on the up and up over here. And now it's just, you know what I mean? Like, just tell me your perspective. Yeah. Those, those voices are echoing in my head. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. And we could just roll our eyes and say like, no, that's, that's, that's totally not how it works. And we we didn't have to picture like a coronavirus or or, or um, a market you know just uh, imploding like Hong Kong did. No, we just we just had to like use you know like good judgment. No, it's not that easy. You just don't pump out you know what what was it? Hold on, I just I just looked it up actually. Um, so in 2019, um, the Swiss watch industry exported 1.6 million uh, watches. Um, that were that that cost over three thousand Swiss francs. One point six million, actually, or close to one point seven million watches. The Swiss watch industry pumped out of itself you know, last year, expecting to sell all of those around the world. And these are export prices at three grand. So imagine how many, you know, like how do you expect all of those to get sold, especially if, if a market just falls in half like Hong Kong did. So it's not that easy, and it's not that not that bright. But like you say now. There's, you know, every crisis is, is also an opportunity. It has that opportunity in itself. Not for every brand and not for every um, every company because there are cash flow considerations and, and a bunch of other stuff that there are limitations. But for sure, there will be a few players in this game who will who will um, uh, make really good use uh, of and take advantage of the situation that we're seeing now. We don't know who that's going to be. And no. one of the things that I've been a lot of... I've been part of uh, is a lot of conversations about what a distribution or marketing or sales model is going to be moving forward. And and all the brands think that there's one and that's not true. It's unclear as to what sustainable sales model a lot of brands are going to have. What I mean by that is are you going to sell your watches in stores through third-party authorized dealers or are you going to sell uh, direct online and different types of sales models have different types of responsibilities for marketing, for customer service. Um, the wholesale model means that you sell a couple of large orders. Mm-hmm. The direct-to-consumer model means that you sell a bunch of individual watches, but you get you know, more margin for each. And those have vastly different considerations on manufacturing products. You know, with retailers, the reason that the model was so sticky is because of risk allocation. So what you would do is you produce a small batch of watches that you would share with retailers and you get orders and you take the money to go produce a bigger batch of watches. That way, you didn't have to spend, you know, untold amounts of money making uh, lines of watches, not knowing if anyone was going to buy them. At least you knew that they were being sold at a wholesale price to a store. That store then had to go sell it to the end consumer, but the brands didn't care at that point because they were happy after they sold it into wholesale. Today, 
brands are very excited about an entirely different model where they have to take all the risk. They got to make the watches. They still trying to do the pre-orders. They're just trying to do through a consumer now and not through brands. I'm sorry, not through retailers. So the, re the, the retailers used to give the brands these large chunks of money so they can build watches. And now the brands are just trying to work directly with consumers through Kickstarter and just through every type of pre-order campaign to do something similar. So then they make the watches and they already have a lot of the money so they feel more comfortable about it. But mm. if they don't have that money, think about the direct-to-consumer model. Think about that risk. Most of them are not even close to being able to ha handle that risk. Yeah. So, so many brands are so excited about selling watches directly to consumers on their website, but they may never have the type of business that allows them to be fully compatible with the direct-to-consumer direct sales model when it comes to manufacturing risk. Uh, so I'm just giving an example of where despite you know, best intentions and, and people trying, brands are going to die because of an inability to be flexible in the world that requires an enormous amount of flexibility. You can't have a culture of discounting. You know, it's like, it's like, imagine if buying every car was like buying a used car. People would just get so annoyed at the process, they'd end up buying less cars because they'd be so nervous that they paid too much. They'd be so nervous that they'd have to haggle. They'd feel like, oh, I should have haggled. What if there's something wrong with the w w car? I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but most people have, you know, at least mainstream people have indicated they don't want this type of car purchase process. But in the watch space, like, it's like if you're the person that goes into the store and spends full retail price, like, you don't want to tell your friend that. You're, like, embarrassed. <laughs> Which is totally not how it should work, ideally. No, it, you know, it should be like, oh, you, you know, you had a good quarter and you went out and you bought yourself that watch and you don't assume that someone overpaid. You just assume that, you know, they bought this because that's what it costs and they wanted the watch. Yep. Um, so this culture of like constant discounting, like, I don't know when it's going to go, but it definitely has to go because, again, it's just not sustainable. You can't have a sustainable luxury like product category where your average rank-and-file consumer feels foolish by spending uh, retail price. Yeah, that, that's a whole other discussion, but, that, but I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying, like, these are, these are things that we can look forward to being resolved after the, the great break. <laughs> Rolex will still be fine. Rolex is the most rock-solid of all these people. Of course. You know, look, but this is, this is what we do. We have to stand from the side and ask ourselves... Um, you know, who's going to be left around in a few years? Part of it is very practical. You know, we'll have like a business deal with a brand and then they go bankrupt. And we're like, that was a, you know, a big, unfortunate waste of time. But like, that's happened a lot. Like that's happened the last, you know, several weeks, right? Also, when we tell, an, uh, we tell a consumer audience about us being excited about a brand and, the, and a watch that this brand is going to be putting time and effort behind, you know, if the brand's not going to be there in a year to keep developing the collection, you know, we don't want to put that much time into talking about it. So we we have an obligation to look for brands that look like they're seriously into what they're doing and have figured out some type of way of making money behind it. You know, if a brand, I mean, you look at like Along and Zona, like it's never been a question to me whether or not Along and Zona is doing okay. They don't make that many watches a year. If you're into watches at all, they're great. Um, they're expensive, but they don't come across as overpriced, given what you get. It's just like a, it's like a nice, stable, you know, like we just sort of keep doing the same thing and we'll be okay. 
Mm-hmm. We don't know when we're going to meet with this brand in 2020, but whatever they're doing in 2020 is going to be okay, and with minimal support, they'll be able to sort of keep moving forward for a long time. But a lot of brands, like, without that, like, celebrity thing they got or without, you know, them being popular in that one country, what do they have? Not much. I mean, I, th- I, I thought it was very interesting to see the sort of uh, bankruptcy of Degra Sagono. Yeah. And, you know, their reliance on certain parties, for example, or being seen at certain places, like, it wasn't about their product. It was all about placement and positioning. You know what I mean? Like it was a, it was, it was like many of these brands, as solid as they appear, they're they're actually hanging on by by a thread. Not that they're, not that their position in the market is weak, but if something in the market changes, their entire structure of demand can just collapse overnight sometimes. And so you're starting to see some brands going away now because their little niche. Their little sort of slice of luxury where they had their in to buyers or whatever it was um, has now gone away, and that's all they had. And the unfortunate reality is that some of these brands that are going to go away have good product, but ultimately um, it'll make room for some new brands because, again, the passion for watches, it just stays strong. You know, consumer demand is strong. People are interested. Smart watches have made people more interested in traditional watches than ever. Even if less people are wearing traditional watches, more people are into traditional watches. So a lot of the problems we see is a watch industry that was probably too big in the sense that the world didn't need that many traditional watches anymore, but still has a very real place to be. And I still get excited about the next watch. You know, I remember when I first got in to writing about watches, there were these people that were like, I'm bored of watches. I remember this one guy said, I've seen everything. This was like 10 years ago. <laughs> and in that 10 years, as you know, David, so many new things have come come up. Mm. This guy said, I've seen everything. Nothing excites me anymore. And I remember being scared when I heard that, but not mm. believing it was going to happen. And it didn't happen. I'm still, I'm still, you know, surprised on a regular basis in the watch industry, and I don't think I would be doing this if I wasn't. Of course not. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and I can, I can, I can say the same thing. Yeah, fortunately, as long as they're exciting watches, sometimes from smaller brands. You know, smaller brands are, are at times more agile or, or can be a little bit more liberal and more free with their designs. And so sometimes it's big brands and they're. They, they, the way that they move like icebergs like Rolex is doing and maybe Omega a little bit as well um, like that so I'm, I'm just I just want to see I just want to make sure that we see new watches this year and that this year is not going to um, be like a big halt where there are like no really new watches um, yeah I wouldn't want that I want I want my new watches this year well okay so this is a problem because I want my new watches as well but we know that our appetite for watches as watch critics, watch media, watch reviewers is always going to be larger than the appetite a consumer can have. So what's the right medium between getting us as media excited and not overproducing? Yeah, I think it's not just about it. it's, you know, for us, it's, 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 you know, entertainment in a way and excitement and all that. And for customers, it's, it's choice. 
So obviously the brands are not really worried about whether you or I are excited. They, they care about providing an alternative to the customer. So if, if someone has like five grand to spend on a watch or two grand to spend on a watch or 500 to spend on a watch, they want to be the alternative that said customer considers. Um, that, that's that's all, that, all it's about. That's where new, new watches come into the picture. Um, I don't have the answer to the question of who will take up marketing responsibility. I mean, one of the problems that we've seen over the last few years is no serious players investing in marketing. Like, Rolex is putting money into it, but they're not really innovating or doing anything new, and they're by no means experimental or particularly liberal in their advertising spending. Like, if you're not Wimbledon, you know, it's not really a conversation you're going to have. Um, yeah. And the other brands just... Maybe they're making Facebook a lot of money, but otherwise, you know, they're not really pulling their weight. They're not doing anything interesting, uh, whether it's digital or, or billboards or, you know, maybe sometimes events. But I, I don't think there's any, there's no marketing genius in the industry right now. People keep talking about uh, Jean-Claude Biver, who, yes, he was a marketing genius and he knew what he was doing, but he's retired. And they're like, oh, Biver's back. He's doing a lot of things. He's very active right now. I'm like... No, he he just retired. Yeah, he'll still be doing stuff, but like, you know, like homeboy doesn't care anymore. Like, <laughs> he has a lot of money. He doesn't need to work. Watches are his passion. He loves to publicly speak. He wants to educate, but he's not going to kill himself to save an industry that he's sort of like wiped his hands off of of this point. So yeah. you know, who's going to come and fill those shoes? The industry is not exactly great at hiring these people. I mean, mm. so there's a lot of things that that are sort of going against the watch industry as it is right now, even though there's a lot of things going for watches as a product category. And one of the questions I keep asking myself, and I don't have the answer, is can high-quality watches that would make collectors like you and me happy, can they be produced in a sort of parallel industry, might even be in Switzerland, but represents a whole new list of names and brands and people than, than what we have. Meaning, does this old guard need to go away and let somebody new come in that ha does things a new way? Is that, is, that, is that a good or bad thing? Is that feasible? Because I don't see a lot of, especially the corporate-owned brands, funda mm -hmm. fundamentally changing or at least changing radically enough so that they would have a shot in some of these sort of examples that, I, that I'm, I'm giving. I don't see them changing. So I see others coming in, but not them becoming those. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's precisely the point. I think, I think we have so many brands. It's so much uh, to work with. So, you know, I could list all the, all the brands, most, almost all the brands in Richmond Group, for example, all of the brands in Swatch Group, um, who are there sitting on this amazing heritage and so much IP and all that. And it's not being fully utilized. And the, and the thing is, like you said, the industry is not exactly great at hiring or even attracting people once you look behind the scenes. Who, who you know? Because if, if I was like a marketing genius in the car industry or tech industry or whatever, and I and I needed to change, and you know, there's a good chance I would look at watches. But the moment I learned how remote control these brands are by the groups in a lot of ways for reasonable considerations i mean one brand should not cannibalize the other and we, you know this is a whole different discussion but the point is that if we had like 
five marketing geniuses at the top five brands of Richmond Group, which sounds like a totally unimaginable scenario to me, but it comes, you know, let's let's picture that it were to happen. Imagine what that would lead to. The amazing marketing, the amazing presence of watches, the amazing products and all that. I think that would be a totally different world for us to live in as far as watches are, are concerned than what we have now. This, this amazing staleness where no brand is, is, is allowed to harm the other or cannibalize the other in, in even the tiniest bit. Um, at, at all, and there's no, you know, free uh, freedom to move by, uh, you know, for these brands. Well, you had they that. Make... You had that at General Motors. That you know, that was yeah. the General Motors thing, and then it it killed them, and they tried to save a broken system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and it's still around. It's still around, but they had to break it. It just it had to break. They had to kill a bunch of brands. What? What? They were they were allowing freedom or not allowing freedom? No, they they so General Motors. <clears throat> owned a bunch of car brands mm-hmm. and the brands <clears throat> they shared platforms they weren't allowed to compete with one another the brands were designed to fill in voids that other brands created yes. they didn't they didn't actually give the market things that the market wanted they were just designed to like fit marketing space and not not cannibalize one another and GM put all of its money into marketing and not enough into product. And that was the the giant lesson that the world learned from General Motors is you can't buy your way out of a bad product. Yes, exactly. The world except the watch industry, apparently. Because, you know, we, we, we've said this many times before, actually, but, but I'll say it again because I think it's, it's, it's such an accurate description of the situation in, in, in some ways, at least. Like, picture that, like, Cartier wanted to make, like, an amazing pilot's watch for, like, seven grand with an in-house movement that looked great and had the Santos history, like, Santos, you know, like, 21st century version or whatever. And they would be told, like, no, you cannot do that because our pilot watch brand is IWC. You cannot cannibalize the, the seven grand IWC pilot. It can, it can only cost, like, 14 grand and it cannot have an in-house movement or it cannot have that good design or whatever. And so all of these products are in one way or another, either by price, by design, by marketing allowance or whatever, are held back from being as great as they are. And it's not a limitation in the engineer, in the engineers or in the designers of these brands or even in their imagination. It's just simply the fact that they cannot have like three Richmond Group brands, cannot have three amazing pilot watches for seven grand that are as good as they can be. This is just never going to happen. Richemont's plan would work if their brands were the only watch brands in the world. The second that <laughs> the other watch brands of the world don't have to abide by the fact that, oh, of course we won't compete with IWC's price point, the whole thing breaks apart. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, That's so, so their, their entire concept of doing that demonstrates their lack of looking outside. They just don't look outside. Yes, so self-centered. It's true. It is true. They, they think like, oh, if we, you know, like, and it's... And the problem is, like, they have an amazing range of watches that are basically almost none of them, like 95% of them, are not as good as they could be, either for price or for design or for marketing or whatever. And it's, again, it's not because they're stupid or they are dumb or they don't know how to do it, but they are, but because they are artificially held back from being as good as they can be. And I've been looking at this trend for years. I'm, I'm not thinking about this like, oh, I just thought of this. No, I... I I started, I had this idea or this concept in my mind like, I don't know, four or five years ago and every single SIHH and every single mid-year release, I was looking at it like this, 
and this whole picture has like just formed in front of my eyes uh, of these brands and of these novelties. And I think that this is an absolute pattern, and it's absolutely true. Which is so. Which what is David a loss is saying, if you look at if you look at watch press releases for long enough, you will begin to develop conspiracy theories. I think that's basically the moral. Yes, story. actually, that's true. <laughs> I guess I guess that's that's a that's a spot on analysis. No, but really, I mean, I think that the point that we're making here is 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 sad but true. Um, look, I mean, I it's it's actually almost unfair a little bit to put, you know, to put uh, uh, Richemont in this particular position. Look, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to make money. Um, they're not they're not bad or evil or or something like that because they're not allowing you know uh, Cartier's you know, pilot watch to be as good as it can be. I just, sure. I think the moral of the story is that from our detached perspective, so much of their strategy is misguided. And it's sort of like, if you had asked a few more people, they may have said to you, hmm, I understand that you want to make money and we all agree you should, but maybe not this way. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like there's so little consultation like they they always hire all these management consulting firms and i'm like how do those people have the ability to give richemont an answer like we've had to live and breathe this industry and become legitimate like impassioned nerds for Mm -hmm. a long time and still very few of people in watch media can even figure out the watch industry how is it that like a bunch of like third year associates at you know um, some accounting or, or management consulting firm can do a crash course in the watch industry and then fix a giant problem that that Richant themselves can't fix. Like, like where? How is it even likely? <laughs> well, all it isn't. It's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's we, there's a there's a core issue of of uh, knowledge gap or. Um, I don't know. It's just it's some type of dysfunction that means that despite everyone's best efforts, uh, there's a lot of tripping on your own feet. I mean, the watch brands want to sell watches directly to consumers, but at the exact same time have as many retailers as they can purchase watches via wholesale, who they know they're going to compete with the second they deliver those watches. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's business as usual at most watch brands today who's thinking you know what that's going to be a very we're going to be all be in a great position four years from now i mean the watch retailers literally are like how can we buy only the product we want and sell it as secretively as possible without the watch brands learning who the customers are and taking them away from us it's like this it's such a weird relationship where there isn't a lot of trust or loyalty between the retailers and the brands and this is not all brands it's not all retailers but to a large degree I mean you know this they these companies should be like shaking hands and loving one another but the people that sell the watches and the people that produce the watches um in no time that I've I've experienced have been in in more of um sort of like just a position of mistrust just you know what i mean like businesses they have to do it but they never sit there and say hey have i got an idea for you i mean think about this the brands want retailers to open up brand boutiques 
And the brands require the retailers to like buy the inventory and buy the build out. And sometimes they share in the prices and things like that. And it's a place for the brand to store the watches in the area and all this stuff. But the retailer still has to risk, take the risk in all the inventory. So the retailer is like the one putting the 100 or 200 watches in the store. And people are seeing it and getting excited about the brand. So the, the retailer might think to themselves, wait a minute. You're not allowing me to discount because it's a brand boutique and your watches are like available at a discount pretty easily online. And this is essentially a showroom where I'm paying people to show your show off your watches that we can't even sell because people are buying them from the guy down the street who's just a mere authorized dealer and can give them a discount. So not all these things apply to every situation, but this, you know, what I just described to you is a very common like scenario with a watch retailer when trying to figure out like where their incentives are and where their loyalties are. And I brought this stuff up for years to retailers and watchmakers and they just sort of like scratch their mind, their head. And they're like, you mean there's an alternative to this? Like they don't, you know what I mean? Like no one ever says, let's, let's stop doing this. We could go on for, <laughs> for ages um, rambling on about these issues because they are valid issues. It is true, but I think we should we should really end this discussion somewhere. Uh, looking forward to the foreseeable uh, future, like share our expectations for the next year or three years or something like that. Oh, is it getting too real for everyone? Is that it? It's getting too <laughs> long. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I think that what everyone should know is that the Blog to Watch team has a lot of very serious conversations about this industry. Look, a lot of us, you know, don't have necessarily backgrounds in this, but we've had to figure this stuff out. The watch industry does not publish a lot of information about it. I mean, today, someone, I think from an insurance company or something, was like curious about the number of watches uh, that, that, you know, that the Swiss watch industry sells and produces each year. And I'm like, that information isn't really cataloged anywhere. You have... You have the you know the the FH um, in Switzerland. FHS, yeah. Yeah, that, that that has certain types of information. There's some information from retailers, but for the most part, like it's everyone's guess. There's no list out there that says how many watches are sold, how much money has been made. So much of it is patently a secret. This is the most secretive industry that I that I know of. Doesn't need to be, but it is. Mm-hmm. And. <laughs> so us trying to figure out what's going on, no one's just giving us a call and being like, okay, guys, you know, this is under embargo, but this is going to happen the next six months. Like, we have no we have no freaking idea. <laughs> so we're just, we're in our little blog to watch boat in the crazy, the crazy stormy sea, which is the watch industry right now. And more so than ever, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of learning and exploring in, in uncharted territory and trying to figure out what it is. And, and really, at the end of the day, discover who's making the best watches that make us happy and that we want to tell our audience about. The mission hasn't changed. That's absolutely true. That's so true. Yeah, we'll live. We'll, we'll, our, our little boat will float through this, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not worried about that. It's just a little bit more stormy now than it, it used to be recently. That's okay. And we're still wondering where we're, when we're going to see Rolex in 2020. I mean, that's a, that's like yes. it's like it's been such a institution. Day one of Basel, mm-hmm. you meet with Rolex, you see the new Rolex watches, and then you don't see them again anywhere for 18 months, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yay! 
Oh my god, that's, that's totally gonna happen. Alright everyone, I think this is time for us to wrap it up. Aria, you agree? Yes, thank you so much for listening to our episode on, uh, I guess, life after, uh, uh, you know, like, watch again in 2020. Um, <laughs> we're going to go to Switzerland and see how we can help pick up the pieces. We'll talk to you later. We'll do that. Yes, absolutely. Talk to you later. Bye, everyone.